The Working Artist Project is brought to you by Second Line Arts Collective. Learn how you can support at secondlinearts.org. We're creating a platform for those who are curious. One that tells the story from the artist's perspective. Moments in time, captured from the innovators who are reshaping dance, music, theater, and the visual arts. This is The Working Artist Project. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to The Working Artist Project. My name is Gregory Ajid. Darian Douglas, we're back. How are you? Yo, Gregory Ajid is me, Darian Douglas, the one and only. I'm not going to give all the AKs tonight, Greg. They know who I am. They know what it is, Greg. (laughs) Here here we go again. (laughs) That's all I got to say. All right, here we go. It's showtime, baby. It's showtime. You know, I'm a true showman. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Well, man, I'm glad, you know, I guess we're here talking about entertainment industry stuff. So I'm I'm glad one of us is a showman. There you go. I'll tell you, man, this week has been crazy. You know, my whole house flooded. So basically my house is a, it's, it's a war zone and I bought it. I bought the house in November, man. And now it's like, you know, it looks like Iraq up in there. You know what I'm saying? It's it's pretty crazy. Wow, you you're like just going for it tonight, huh? <laughs> <laughs> just like Iraq. All right. <laughs> hey, don't sorry, email me. Email Greg. Email all hate mail to Greg, not me. Okay, that's how. I, whenever some insensitive is said, email Greg because he he wrote it in my script, right, Greg? Uh, I can neither confirm nor deny the allegations. Um, anyways, well, tonight, man, yo, so look, check it out. We're at that time of year now. I think we just had a conversation, but yo, we're, we're like getting ready to like do the summer camp again this year. So mm. non-music workshop season six, right? Ooh, season six coming straight to you. And you know what? I'm going to give an exclusive tonight. Everybody who's watching the, the quadrillion, billion, millions of people who watch our show uh, we got the one and only Marquise Hill live and in person as long as the zombie apocalypse don't stop us in the summer, right? I am so psyched about that. You know, I, I feel very, very blessed that we're going to have a, a cat like that join us for, for the week. And again, man, you know, when you asked me who my dream artist was, that was my dream artist, Marquise Hill. So I'm, I'm super excited that we're going to have him with us this summer. That's going to be fun. <laughs> So y'all just head on over to secondlinearts.org and um, check out what we're cooking up. But anyway, without further ado, Greg, go ahead and, and announce today's guest because he is a true original. Well, what's killing is tonight we coincidentally have another trumpet player in the house. Hey. And um, I met this gentleman years ago over at Loyola University. I believe possibly I graduated, but this guy was always on the scene. And uh, he plays in a, a killing band that made a, a re- great reputation for themselves here in New Orleans called Naughty Professor. And uh, currently the pandemic, you know, it's like changed up life for him. And uh, he's kind of been dealing with more virtual things. But anyways, we're going to talk all about that. But we have a great, great musician in the house, uh, Mr. John Colbreth in the house. John, what's up? What's going on, fellas? <laughs> what? <laughs> What's good, John? Hey, y'all, so everybody know, before we got started, I let I let John know there was nothing he can do to sound better than me. You know what I'm saying? It's nothing he can do. It's nothing he can do. Hey, John, I'll tell you a funny story, man. I got a friend who you play trumpet. <laughs> now, just this has nothing to do with nothing, but I just got to tell this story to somebody. And Greg, you know this cat, I think, man. So anyway, he's a trombone player, but he just started playing trumpet. And he said that he's better than every trumpet player except Marquise Hill. And I told him, that's how I know you are a true 
trumpet player. You've been playing the wrong instrument your whole life. Because <laughs> <laughs> all trumpet players got a vibe on them. What you think about that? Oh, that's definitely true. One hundred percent true. John, just for the record, this is the most lit the intro has ever been. Like you, you are you are the guest on the craziest night ever. <laughs> wow, damn! I'm it's honored. always like this. Man. It's always like and this. Darian, actually, I I pretty vividly remember when I met you. Uh, oh, okay. So, oh, be careful! Be careful! Be careful! Yeah. No, no, no. It's it's chill. It's chill. Uh, okay. But it's also hilarious. Um, I, I think you were. Oh, yeah. You were playing with Jason Marsalis. He was on Vibes as Snug. And I was like, you know, this bright eyed, bursty tailed like freshman. Uh, and uh, I was coming in like it was in between sets. And I had someone had told me that, like, if you ask nicely that you can like sit in. And uh, <laughs> so I kind of went up and I was like, you know, sheepishly kind of scooching my way like towards Jason. And then uh, and then you were there. And you're like, hey, what's up, man? Like, you know, what are you doing? Like, and I'm just like, oh, I was just, uh, I was just wondering if I, I could sit in with the band. And, uh, and he's like, oh, and then you, and then you turn to Jason. You're like, Jason, this kid. And you kind of got his attention. And uh, I'm like, hi, hi, Mr. Masalas. Like, so nice to meet you. And, and then you're just like, I couldn't even say anything before. You were like, Jason, this kid says he's going to pipe you out, man. <laughs> I was like, no, 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 Mr. Patel. I did not say that. I did not say that at all. <laughs> hey, that sounds like me, man. I'm, I'm pretty sure you you had it. You see, you play trumpet, man. So he probably did say that, Greg. I'm sure he said it, man. But <laughs> I, but I say this, man. You sound beautiful, man. I, I, we checked you out with uh, Naughty Professor and, and y'all funky, man. Uh, thanks, bro. Yeah. So, John, so man, I would love to have an opportunity to uh, for you to kind of like tell the the origin story of Naughty Professor and and how you guys uh, started the project. Yeah, I mean, it happened pretty quick. Um, it was like the third week of school, and uh, I remember the first like kind of formation of it was just a jam, and Nick Elman, the alto and Barry player in Naughty, uh, I was like practicing my like chair placement uh you know etude or whatever in my in the practice room and then nick comes and like knocks on the door he's like hey man there's a couple guys like trying to jam uh you want to come and i was like yeah sure and then that was kind of the crew like they i think we kind of cycled through a few people but anyway um like yeah like maybe four weeks into this the first school year that we were all there we decided that we were going to book a gig at Satchmo's, which is like the underground little kind of shitty venue uh, in the downstairs of Loyola. Um, and that was kind of, I mean, that was kind of it. And it was, it was like uh, really quickly, like we want to write, we want to be a funk band. We want to do this. Like it was kind of the hungriest kids in the, in the jazz department uh, at Loyola. And then we just started playing gigs and uh writing music and it, it yeah we just like kept going <laughs> um but yeah that was kind of the origin like it was just a bunch of like hungry like ready to write and play musicians um and john where are you from originally i grew up in uh texas mostly houston 
Yeah, it's crazy because like, you know, when I feel like Loyola has like a unique band scene, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not necessarily always integrated into mm-hmm. like the New Orleans scene. And, yep. you know, a lot of that is like logistical with like college kids and just, you know, being in a different part of town and things like that. But something that like I found like really interesting about Naughty Professor too is that like, over, like you all were together for like, I mean, what, 10 years? So how long has the band been together? Yeah. I mean, 2010. Yeah. So. And so like, did you all know from like, 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 I mean, and you all have like recorded several records, have toured the U.S. and done all kinds of, I mean, just really amazing things in terms of like growing a project. (laughs) Um, When you guys started the project, was it, was it with the intention of like, maybe like making a career or like being in a band and traveling afterwards? Or like, how did you guys all approach that at first? Yeah. um, I think we were pretty serious about it from the beginning but we didn't necessarily like know going in that that was going to be our plan after college um at first it was just let's just let's just like throw as many ragers as as we can um and And at some point we got to get into like what was the craziest party you played just (laughs) i mean party i don't know like geez i mean Back when Britannia Bar was a venue, Uh-oh. that place yeah. was where, like, that that was like the college, like, Loyola band, like, entry venue. Because it was just like a streetcar ride down from Loyola. Uh, they let you in uh, if you were 18, um, which that was most venues back then. Um and they had like, you know, cheap beer specials and uh, it would get nice and sloppy and it was like real sweaty. The sound was shit and loud. Um, Dude, did you by chance, you you must have played a Lundy Gras gig at some yeah. point. Oh, yeah. Dude, I remember because I played with Mississippi Rail Company right before y'all. That was the craziest gig ever. Yeah. <laughs> it got pretty nuts, right? I mean, that was... That's where we cut our teeth. Was yeah, it's like it was like literally like a scene out of a movie or something like that. There's like a band and there's like three hundred drunk college kids screaming. Yeah, yeah. oh, that's crazy. Oh, that's so funny. Yo, <laughs> dig, dig anything. Dig, dig this giant. You know, I think uh, people people may not know this, but generally in in, the, in jazz music, jazz musicians don't do the garage band or, you know, the rock band kind of, kind of model where you get a group of guys together, you stay together just with those four or five dudes, whatever, however many men and women, and you get in a van, you tour this and that you grow a product. Mm. Right. And I think what Greg is getting at is that the thing that you guys had did was unique was you did that, mm. you know, you became, you, like you said, we're a funk band. Yeah. So we're going to get together. We're going to grow this product. I'm, I'm most interested in when, when and how, did you recognize your value as a band? And, and this is what I mean, because if you go from playing Britannia bar, right? You, you play that bar and it's cool, but somehow somebody had to have a vision and say, okay, we, we need to do arenas or where, whatever the vision may be. We need to, that's what we're striving for. We don't want to just keep playing Frenchman street. We don't want to just keep playing, you know, the bar down the street from the, from the college. And then how do you, how do you figure out how much that is worth in the marketplace? Yeah, man, that's, that's a good question. And I think 
for a long time, the answer to that in my mind, well, so that was kind of a few things. Um, first of all, I think that it wasn't any one person's idea. I think the fact that it was a collective to begin with kind of fused the product into those six people. So it felt disingenuous to not include one of the members because there was, I mean, it's a six person democracy in, and, and at the beginning, like we wrote the tunes in the same room together and like, we'd have like really long rehearsals in college. Like we'd have five or six hour long rehearsals after school so that we could have enough music to play two hours instead of a 90 at the next gig kind of thing, or just rehearsing. Um, Cause we had a really high standards. I mean, I, I yeah. Um, that, that, so I think the fact that we wrote our first tunes in the same room together bonded us in a way that it wasn't like this kind of light bulb where it's like oh we should we should like shoot for the moon it was more just like what's the next step let's go there let's tour in florida now let's go try to play um you know outside of just the venues in in new orleans um and then to just kind of touch on how do you know what your value is i mean a lot of a lot of it is how many tickets do you sell and that I hate that model, by the way. Now, I don't think a band's value is that. But that's what you're going to get offered if you're only playing clubs that have soft ticket plays. And that's kind of what we did for like basically a decade was like, um, you know, oh, well, we're not we're only worth this much because this is how many tickets we can sell. This is how many members of the public we can get to come pay individually to our show. Well, what is another value? Like how else can you assess value for yeah. something? Well, there there are other pools of money than just in individual people. Um, there's grants, um, performing arts centers, universities, festivals. There's there's money sitting out there um that isn't just how many people that know this one band. So and that's something we've kind of realized recently is that if you are kind of if if you're hired as more of um something that someone else is putting on display um or it's something that like some committee of that has money decided that you represent the type of art that they want to bring to their community it doesn't matter as much how big of a following you have, it really comes back to the essence of like, what is it that you're doing on stage? So you can have a really high, uh, like an impactful show, but a small following. And you might actually get some of these gigs where um, the curator is looking for a specific energy or style or, um, you know, just sound. And if they think that their audience will like it, then if they have a budget, it doesn't have to be, they don't have to make their money from the people paying tickets. Um, it's already there. So then they just get to pick who they want to play. 
Man, even that model is flawed in my opinion, you guys, because that to me, that's the problem with jazz because you create music, but you don't need fans. <laughs> so so, so the, you just create this thing where like no one gives a shit about your music, but these 10 or 30 people bring you around the country or the world every year. But you, but, but you lose the drive to do what you guys did and to build the fan base. I, I think there should be some kind of hybrid mm-hmm. system. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I just think, man, I mean, we, we toured so hard for so long and I've burned out multiple times. Um, the stuff you have to do to make it as an instrumental collective uh, is, I mean, we still don't do runs that are all club plays for that reason. Like the six of us can't afford to go on the road as naughty professor as much as we used to because there's just too much opportunity costs. Like, I feel like every time that I have a gig, like a fly date playing with some other band, I see a member of Naughty Professor in the airport going to a different gig that I'm not, you know? And, and, and so it started to get to the point that it was like, man, this product, maybe it's the way that we're managing it. Maybe it's just the, it in itself. Um, the fact that we're a six piece instrumental and, and that we're kind of weird and niche, um, you know, whatever the reason, um, the road business model where you sell where that is mainly based on soft ticket sales, uh, just hadn't, it it hadn't been given back to us. Um, and I mean, there's, I don't know. I mean, you guys have probably felt this where, you know, there's a moment in a long run where I feel like every like road musician has asked themselves, what what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> what are like how long is this gonna go on? You know, like and um it's real, it's so real, like and it gets more and more yeah. real the more back-to-back tours you do, you know. Um, and that's that's a you know, and that's I think that it, it depends a lot on like the culture of who's in the van with you, the quality of life afforded by the income, um, the people that are, that you're working with, like the, the venues you're working with and like how, uh, you know, respectful and decent the people are that work there. I mean, there's a lot of variables that if you're not careful, there's a lot of bad stuff that can just add up. And if you don't avoid it, it's just going to keep piling up and, and it'll just, it'll knock anybody flat. Um, if you're not careful, something that like, I really admire about you all, like, again, just being a bystander and like kind of seeing the band from that perspective is that you all like really got that reputation of being guys who were like out there trying to make the club dates, trying to build fan bases in every city. Like you guys were always on the road. And it's funny because I remember like being in class at Loyola and the music business um, industry classes and they would always preach like just get in a van and go play Houston and come back and then you know like just this this model of like pretty much what you guys were doing and I think what's what's like what's really hard to understand as a non-musician is like when you think of touring like you just have this like glorious um, idea of like, yeah, you know, we're like getting on first class planes and traveling to, you know, wherever and playing in beautiful venues. And, 
And, um, but getting to that point takes a lot of time and groundwork and, and what you're, again, like what you're talking about, like building fans and building value of your band. Um, but man, I, I just, like, again, like just for, before we move on, I, I mean, I would love for you to like maybe describe like what a tour was actually like, like, again, like if, when you're trying to build a reputation from your band from in, in that way. Yeah. Well, there's different tiers. Um, the early years. So the first tour, I actually wasn't on the very first big tour because I was playing with, uh, the Disney band that summer. Um, and so there were only five people in the band and they got to take Bill's Subaru to, uh, Colorado. So there were five, like just fully grown men in a very small car, uh, with like the, I think they had a trailer. Um, maybe they just had the gear in the back of the car. I don't even remember. And they, I mean, I'm sure they, I'm pretty sure they lost money and the Subaru died on some mountain in Colorado. Um, and then miraculously the revivalists had their old beater van that had died in Colorado, but then got fixed in Colorado and we brought it back to new Orleans <laughs> for them. Wow. Um, so that was, so that was the first tour and I wasn't even on that one. So, I mean, there's not a ton of stories, but, um, I mean the next, you know, yeah, nine years. Um, I mean, there's a lot of floors. There is a lot of stuff where we didn't know we were going to stay at the end and like asking the audience at the end, yo, if anybody's got a floor or a couch or something, we need a place to stay. Like keeping overhead low was the hardest part. And Greg's one of the, one of the things I think that is a bit of a mismatch between that business model that the music industry department at Loyola was teaching and naughty is that that model from Loyola, I think was more directed at are like individuals or, you know, singer songwriters where you don't have to have six people and like the whole time. Cause that's a lot of overhead. Like, you know, uh, we used to do three guys to a, uh, a room, uh, you know, in a hotel. Then we upgraded to two guys like a, at one point, which was like, ah, oh, nice. Nobody's on the floor. Um, I've definitely slept on a, on like, some so many strangers like floors and like in like questionable like hygiene situations um i remember there was one place in south carolina where we literally were playing to the sound guy oh yeah well this was an eventful uh night so this this is maybe this is maybe rock bottom <laughs> how a gig could go although there was a redeeming quality which is in the story so we were playing to the sound guy um we were kind of bummed that like going into it, it was like oh geez this is stupid okay well let's uh let's come up with like something fun so like we took out a die and uh you know naughty's songs have you know at least one solo per tune and often more than one so every time there's a solo section, we'd roll the die and there's six people in the band, six sides of the die. So we assigned a number to each person and that's who got that solo section. Um, so we came up with this idea and we're like, all right, okay, well, this might be fun. You know, we can, we can like have fun with this and fuck around and who cares. And then, um, so this, I don't remember what year this was, maybe 2014 or 15 or something. 
And uh, the sound guy <clears throat> comes out with what looks like a like some sort of crack smoking apparatus. He's like, hey guys, do you guys want to uh, take some dabs? We're like, what are dabs? Um, I don't know if you or your audience is familiar with dabs, but it's basically very concentrated uh, marijuana. And we all smoked dabs. Um, <laughs> and we all got uncomfortably high. And then played this gig to no one, uh, rolling for for solos. And I remember Sam, the drummer, getting a, a disproportionate amount of solos uh, <laughs> that night, which was kind of <laughs> um, And then you know we didn't make any money, obviously. And the owner was really nice, and the uh, the sound guy was really nice. So we kind of split the band in half. One half of the band was going to go to the the owner's house. Half of the band was going to go to the sound guy's house. Um, so. We, uh, I was in the sound guy's house crew. We get there. Then we get a phone call from the other van. Uh, <laughs> the owner uh, had gotten pulled over and arrested for, uh, and got it like a DUI or something. This is, this is the, the craziest gig ever. So <laughs> we had to go scoop the other guys with the van. And I think they got a hotel um, with that one. But then, but then Sam came back with the van. And, uh, and then in the, <laughs> and the sound guy had a huge dog, um, who was very possessive of the couch that Sam was sleeping on. And in the middle of the night, the, <laughs> the dog just came on and just like shoved Sam off the couch and <laughs> didn't let him back on. So Sam just like spent the, spent the night on the like cold tile. Um, I think, and you know, the, the, I think it's like, man, I appreciate you sharing like such a, like, yeah, you said rock bottom, man. That was probably the worst like gig in like, you know, all around just, just, just zeros across the board. Uh, I just, you know, like, I feel like it's, it's crazy because like, I think like, like at this moment in life, we're like what, 2022, January 17th. And like, we just went through COVID. No one is like, people are not really interacting with each other. The music business, everything has like completely changed. And so it's like, I feel like a lot of great band stories had like similar oh, yeah. you know, stories to what you're telling us and like how they made it. And I'm like thinking like in the future, like that may never happen again. You know, Maybe. people may never just jump in a van and, and just do tours like that. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, the thing is, at the beginning, it was literally like what we wanted to do. Like it was doing it for its own sake. And that was like, you know, I think that's what got us through the fact that so much of it was shitty is that we were hanging out with our friends, playing music. Um, and you guys, you guys were making some like incredible music, man. I have to say the couple of times that I have seen you like the band, I mean, like you guys were like just one of the tightest bands in New Orleans, funkiest bands. Like you had like a dedicated fan base that would come, come out all the time, know your tunes. And like, I have to say like, just that's like a, an unbelievably great accomplishment to, to have. Thank you, man. I mean, we all respect each other a lot and never want to you know hold anyone else in the band back so i think that pushed us harder than maybe many other uh band situations might be just because 
it, that, I mean, there was just a, an unspoken sort of responsibility to uh, crush. And, you know, and, and we worked really hard on that. I mean, that <laughs> we rehearsed, like those first like three years, the rehearsals were like frequent and long. Um, so. John, I'll, I'll say this, man. Earlier you mentioned, you know, Loyola not teaching you guys the, the right shit. And, you know, that's because university is usually like five years, five to 20 years in the past, usually closer to the 20 mark. And, you know, that road model is old and it worked in 1985, but it doesn't work right now just because of, you know, the way economics and inflation works and shit like that. But I think the future is the metaverse. And I want to ask you this very serious question. Uh, y'all ever thought about getting on OnlyFans? <laughs> Our manager actually brought that up. Uh, see? I mean, not not necessarily, you know, or or just just figuring out a way to deal with music online mm-hmm. is 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 really the way because you can only fit so many people in an arena. Right. But you can fit everybody on the internet. Yes, you can. Will they pay? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's question. They, they, no, they will pay. You just have to figure out a system in order to extract the funds. Product. You need you know a product. You need a product. So you just got to figure out what what is my product, whatever whatever that is. You know, I think that's the yeah. That's kind of the the tipping point or whatever for to figure out the internet. You know, a lot of people have done it, man. You know, I watched the kid play a very terrible. Uh, solo today on uh, a transcription and motherfuckers in the comments. Oh, you're a beast. And I, I had to fight it, put everything in my soul and say, this is fucking sad. But like the internet, it's, he's a beast to some kid in Ohio who ain't never heard nothing. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's all relative. Yeah. So it's, it's room for everybody out here. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a good thing too. Um, uh, well, okay. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, it, it depends on what, what you're trying to do with the music, you know? Um, and like what, what people think is killing is, you know, whatever. Hey, it's relative, man. It's all, it, it's up to them. Yes. Yeah, seriously. I mean, like, you know, um, Juby Taylor. Yeah, so, so man, check this out. So, I, so the pandemic has like, you know, again, like obviously like morphed all of our lives. And I, I remember getting an email from you, um, got about a year ago now, kind of letting me know about a company you started called Musos. And, um, so I would, man, what is Musos? What do you guys do? And, 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 uh, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the idea, I wanted to start getting into alternative revenue streams. Uh, like you were saying, Darren. And um, one of them is selling licenses for your music. And um, often a frequent one is synchronization licenses, which is when music is used in uh, film. And uh, I wanted to talk to, to anybody about it. Like I wanted to talk to someone who knew about publishing or like, you know, when I, when I want to get something done, usually I try to find someone as, you know, an advisor or a mentor in that area. And there just straight up weren't any that I could just hit up in New Orleans. 
Um, and then I just kind of started asking around and people were like, yeah, that'd be great. And then I saw that um, uh, GNO uh, had put out a study where they like had it on paper that there were no publishing companies or, you know, music uh, royalties, you know, based companies in New Orleans. Um, and I started just kind of looking into it. So um, first I just kind of learned what goes into selling a music license, like legally, like how do you do it where it's legit? Um, so, you know, I started learning about the different sides of copyright, masters versus publishing, writer's share versus publisher's share, all this technical stuff that um, you need to have sorted out before you can sell a license to someone. Um, and then uh, I started trying to go to a bunch of different sync agencies. So I Googled like, you know, online sync license you know, company or whatever. And, you know, the ones that, you, the, the most common ones are, uh, you know, like Jingle Punks is one, um, Artlist is one, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of them. Taxi is one. And there's a lot of them that will take your music. Getty Images even has a music licensing platform. Um, but the thing is, the ones that take everybody, the ones that have an online form, you can sign the contract and send the songs in uh, aren't the greatest service to the vast majority of the artists and the deals are straight up predatory. So mm -hmm. like those are the deals where it's like we own uh, the master and the publishing in perpetuity and you get a 30% cut or a 50% cut or something. And that's right. a bad deal for everyone. That is a bad <laughs> deal. If you, you see in perpetuity anywhere in a contract, run the other way as fast as you can. Um, unless you're making a bunch of money. Um, but, you know, even then, like, you know, always have your lawyer look at it. But anyway, um, yeah, so I looked around. I was like, okay, there's nobody here. Um, this isn't freaking rocket science. Um you know, so I started doing it. I started building, I built a website for myself where you could buy a license on the website. And of course, nobody saw it because who gives a shit about the music that I make, you know, proverbially, um, you know. So then I started looking into who is it that actually buys music licenses? Um, and the first most obvious, like the most frequent and most obvious seems like YouTube creators. There's a ton of them. Um, but then I realized there's services out there where you can pay a blanket fee every year of like $100 or something. And then you have access to their entire catalog royalty free for all of your YouTube videos, unlimited videos. So it's like, oh, I can't compete with that. Um, and um, it was a rat. So I was kind of bumping my head around. I felt like I was in the dark. I was learning things, but mostly just being discouraged. And then I met uh, this dude. Bob Brockman. Um, and he had moved down um, from New York. I think he he grew up here and then moved to New York and produced a whole bunch of records. And he came back down here and he heard that I was trying to start uh, something around sync licensing. And then 
Um, he had been working with Naughty Professor on just like a random recording we did. But then we linked up and started talking about, you know, the needs in the community here and like sync licensing. And he had actually worked at a sync licensing uh, company up in New York before. So he kind of had some experience doing that. Um, and yeah, that was kind of the inception of it. We, you know, decided to form a company and start represent, like build, basically build a platform to kind of draw more customers to New Orleans artists specifically. Um, and you guys have yeah. an awesome artist roster. You guys got like uh, Naughty Professors on there. Uh, got uh, who was uh, I was looking through it yesterday. Um, yeah, we have a bunch of great artists. Um, yeah, we're really lucky to to be working with some like really fantastic artists. Um, how do you how do you sell these things to 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 movie? You know, I guess to movie producers or music buyers. Yeah, that's that's the million dollar question. Um, and mostly it's. Um, being, I mean, so <laughs> there's like, I think there's, there's different types of customers. Um, so it's kind of like knowing who is buying what, um, for what production, um, and when. So something that we learned very early on is that, um, a lot of the creative directors and music supervisors, um, who are responsible for sort of sourcing music and then vetting the rights, uh, like on a film or an ad, are very, like they kind of have their circle because there's a lot of trust that goes into working with someone who sources music. Um, if somebody gives you, licenses, you know, licenses a song to a film and it turns out that that person didn't have the right to do that, Everyone involved in that whole decision is in big trouble, maybe blacklisted. And then the film like might have, you know, legal action taken against it by the artist, like whoever did own it or, you know, it's, it's a huge, expensive, terrible mistake. So because of that, um, I think a lot of these people like they don't go out like looking for you know, new people to work with all the time. So a big thing for us has been how do we kind of organically communicate to the people that um, need music for film and, and TV and stuff that we exist here, that we're a community that's, you know, um, artist led um, and that, you know, we're an ethical like company that act in like are transparent with our artists and you know are doing things legit down here and that we're vetting the artists correctly um so that's like a one-on-one -on -one relationship with like every show that we want to pitch for um so that involves just kind of researching who um works with that production or that show or that film or the ad um and like kind of customizing an introduction to them where we're providing value as soon as possible and also demonstrating that we're were chill and not spammy. So <laughs> there's definitely an art to that. And we've definitely been kind of skittish about, you know, we have contacts or we have contact information, but, uh, you know, we're, we've held off on hitting everybody up until we have something to bring them to the table. 
Um, Because otherwise, we're just like another person like cold calling, trying to get, you know, into their inbox. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, we're we're still trying to figure out how to more efficiently do that. Um, Man, can I ask you too, like, you, you mentioned before that, like, you know, a thing like this doesn't really exist in New Orleans. Like, why, why do you think it's so challenging for, like, New Orleans natives or people living in New Orleans to really, like, enter the industry like like you guys are trying to do? And, and like, what are the, the hurdles that, I don't know, like, it feels like just, again, like, as a yeah. New Orleans artist, it's just like, you know, we can play live gigs and stuff, but then how do we get into the industry? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a multifaceted, like, thing. Um, I think part of it is that the gig economy in New Orleans is, like, just enough. So, like, you know, there it, it's, it can be rough, but also, like, you can ride it out. It's, you know, you can make it work with, with the gig economy. So, that's, I think that's one reason is that, like, you can be only a musician and play only the gigs that you get called for and not do any promotional work and probably get by if you're good um or if you're chill or some combination or if you know how to set up a sound system or something you know it's it's like you can you can work so it's kind of almost like a drug like where where you don't have to like put in too much momentum to be able to like eat I mean, you might be playing, you know, kind of bullshit gigs. You might not want to, you might not be playing music you want to play all the time, but like the, the gig economy is like there to fall back on every time. Um, I think that's one thing. Another thing is that there's not much like infrastructure financially, um, which, you know, that might actually be a blessing. Because a lot of times the way that that infrastructure enters is in really bad record deals where it's essentially just the worst financing, uh, you know, of all time. Like recoupment deals are, are insane. You're just, you know, um, they're, they're almost designed to where you never get out of them. Um, like the only difference is that you don't go bankrupt if the whole thing flops. So, I mean, you know, it's kind of... It's it's almost like you're betting against yourself when you sign a record deal. Um, John, John, dig this. Tell me what you think of this. Because as a person who's lived in New Orleans and outside of New Orleans, the one thing that I've noticed is the, the biggest difference now, I live in New York now, is the mindset. Mm. And this is a cultural thing where in New Orleans, everybody thinks of things that can happen in New Orleans. Mm. In New York, everyone thinks of things that can happen in the world. Mm-hmm. So, so what happens is if you only think about things that can happen in your city, in your medium city, which is a beautiful, I think it's the best city in the world, but you know, then there is no gr- room for growth outside of what you can see. Mm-hmm. So, so nobody's actually striving to connect with those people, not for real, because you got to make world connections. Mm-hmm. You got to know people who are outside of your inner circle mm-hmm. and, and the culture from what I could tell of new Orleans doesn't really align with that. That's not good or bad, but I do think that is something that people, if you really want to do it, you have to th- check your mindset because yep. everyone yep. in new Orleans starts with new Orleans first. 
everyone in New York starts with the world first. Mm. Just yeah. something to think about. And when you talk to people, listen to them. Everyone in New Orleans, in New Orleans, people in New York don't say in New York. They're like, yo, in France, in Belgium, we're going to go over here. We're going to connect with this guy who I went to film school with who's from Japan. And he's going to hook me up with some guys that I know in Germany. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's it's different like that. I, I think that is a tendency. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't paint it as black and white quite. Like, there are people in New Orleans thinking world. And there's probably people in New York thinking, how do I play gigs that are only within a five block radius of my house, you know? Um, but, you know, I, and I think it's changing in New Orleans and quickly. Um, you know, global warming is here now. Um, tells <laughs> is it? The, the yeah, it's, it's here in New Orleans, man. It rains. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it rains. That hurricane, bro. It's here. Hey man, hey uh, man, John, we finna get a lot of emails, man. You talking about global warming and shit, man. No, earth, yeah. But now the earth is round. Are Come on, hip, man. Are you hip to global warming, the the label? No, I'm not, I know that man. What is global warming? Dude, Pell's label is is in New Orleans. Global warming. It's oh, uh, work. it's oh man, it's awesome. I mean, they just started um like maybe what last year or two years ago or something, but they're making real moves. Um, Mid Citizen Entertainment, the management uh, company for Big Frida and Tank and the Bangas and uh, a bunch of other awesome acts, they've got their shit together and they're definitely taking over the world. Absolutely. Um, you know, so I think stuff is, I think things in New Orleans are changing and I think they're changing quickly. And I think the pandemic kind of accelerated that because um, everyone started looking for a plan. Which is maybe the first time that a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, every everybody, every musician in the world is like, "Oh shit!" Now, what? How do I make money if if I can't play on somebody's stage? You know. Yep. Man, when you were, when you were when you were making that comment about New Orleans, like, I mean, it's it's like I feel like, I mean, yeah, that's all true, but like New Orleans has like such a different history than a place than New York too, and and it's it it again is like embedded in the culture because of like. You know, first of all, like geographically, where New Orleans is located, man. Like, I mean, you got to travel six, seven hours in a car to hit Houston, and that's the only city that's near us. You know, everything else yeah. is just like a fucking farmhouse. Um, and it's like, yeah, I guess and the other thing too is like everyone in the South, like we're coming. Everyone's going to New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. It's, and it's it's crazy too. Like, just I mean, like you know, considering that. You know, like when you're when you're living in New Orleans, like you you you're there. Like that's everyone, yeah. you know. Versus like New York, everyone is a transplant on some level, or the majority of people are transplants. And it's funny, yeah. like I, I I do think a lot of that change is happening in New Orleans, but the word transplant, I feel like, is like a lot of the motivating, um, like you know, circumstances around that change in mentality yeah. and access to to places outside of here too. You know. Like when you have like I mean I'm thinking the last five years like how many musicians from New York and mm -hmm. LA and things like that have moved to town and again like just morphed the scene from what it was like back when Darian was living here I mean when Darian was living here there were like two drummers to call it was like him and there <laughs> <laughs> was some more cat man no I I think I think you guys are right but all I'm saying is it's 2022 and and there's there's a little bit of room for improvement oh yeah. A little bit more, you know, I mean, for every city, but New Orleans is, in my opinion, the greatest city in the world. And so I want to see it 
I, some of the most talented people I've ever seen in my life are just playing on the streets. <laughs> I want to see those cats, you know, uh, yeah. on the highest yeah. stage, on the highest levels. And, um, yeah. I, man, I feel like part of it is the fact that maybe the contentedness of just playing music is part of the spirit here, where the the first goal isn't uh, economic stability, it's art. Um, hmm. And that might be a position that leads you to financial detriment, but I mean, that kind of is kind of wrapped up into the culture here. It's like, make art, be yourself, live the way you want to live. Um, and that's, you know, I, I think that there's kind of a beauty to uh, not minding that your creative process doesn't involve a financial plan. It makes it tough. Um, you might not, you know, like it. Like, you know, um, if if you're not thinking about that, it can kind of bite you in the ass. But also, like, who am I to tell an artist, like, hey, you have to go make profit, like, with your craft. Like, you have to go tour the world. You have to play in front of as many people as possible. Like, you know, I, I think that well, you don't, you don't, you don't have to. Just don't send me your GoFundMe. That's all I'm saying. You can do whatever you want. <laughs> but when you're 65 with no health insurance and money, well, yeah. Don't send me, I'm not giving you shit because you didn't put the work in on the other side. This is a business. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And I, I think, yeah. And honestly, the thing that spurred me to start this whole search was how much my body hurt after Jazz Fest. <laughs> I was like, damn, I'm like, I'm 20, whatever, 27, 28. And this is how my body feels now. Like, I, I go to Jazz Fest like with a suitcase from state to state. <laughs> yeah. Man. So I was like, I got to figure out how to make money with, with music where it doesn't involve like a feat of athleticism every single time. Man, I think, yeah, dude. And, and that's why like I commend you on like what you're doing with the Mizos. And, you know, I, bro, it's, it's just, for being down here, like still living in New Orleans, I think the hardest transition is like leaving that scene, man. It's like it's really fucking hard, and because it, it's, it's, it's hard, but it's not because it's yeah. hard if you're only talking to the cats on your gigs. But if you start looking for people, there's the internet. Like I literally met like most of the people that we talk to and work with on a you know weekly basis with Musos is remote. Even people that we work with in New Orleans, like maybe I've met with them for coffee once and then the rest has been remote. So it's kind of just like, it's out there if you start looking for it, you just have to kind of decide that you want it. Um, Absolutely. And, and it's it's out there, man. I mean, I, so there's, there's a couple guys that I've been working with, um, I've been writing some music with uh, for a while now. So, um, there's a rapper named K Sparks, uh, who's based out of New York, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, he and his producer, ESK Essential Knowledge, who who lives in Vermont. Um, I forget. I forget. I think it was Max Bronstein, the guitar player, who who uh, kind of plugged me in with them. But they basically, you know, I, I built my own or I bought my own studio rig, so that was actually like a big catalyst in me like looking for other ways to use music. Um, and it was the best investment 
like I had. And, you know, I spent basically all the money I had. And then I got a credit card with Sweetwater that had the 48 month 0% financing and just five grand. Um, And then I got my monitors. I got my universal audio. I got the software. And then I started just making shit and it sucked for a couple years. Um, But I started getting fluent with it. Um, So the fact that I had my own microphone and my own recording rig, uh, made me relevant in a conversation one time when someone was like, Hey, you want some trumpet on that beat? Like my friend has a mic. And then I started collaborating with them and they sent me a beat and, you know, being a jazz musician and having a beat where it's kind of like lo-fi hip hop vibes is like, okay, finally I have somewhere where I can like imitate Miles Davis and it makes sense. (laughs) Like finally, like something I can play Harmon mute on and it's the right vibe. Um, So I just, it was so easy and those guys were so chill and the beats were just like, you know, fire. Um, So they just kept sending me stuff. I kept playing on it and it was all collaborative. So we, you know, anything that I played on, I knew that they were going to treat me right and split the copyright evenly. Um, And so I, they, a couple of those songs made it onto K Sparks record. Um, I kept collaborating with, with Robert, who's essential knowledge. And then actually this year, um, one of those beats that was just a random beat that I probably spent 45 minutes, like top to bottom, like putting up the mic, playing into it, mixing the temptations bought that song. And it was like, you know, that would not have happened if I hadn't like develop these relationships, set myself up to be able to collaborate and kind of ride on the fact that nobody in the music industry can predict what's going to happen. Like it, the, the industry is so unpredictable that it's just like, go for the quantity, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was just yeah. like a crazy success thing that I did not expect. It wasn't part of a plan or anything, but just the fact that I reached out to these people that are in other places that follow through on the tracks and like started working with people that it felt like they had momentum and they were actually doing stuff with the music. I kind of started being like, okay, that this is the type of person that I want to be like associating with on a daily basis because there are people that I have to either catch up to or that, that like will catch up to me if I'm ahead of them. Um, in a project or whatever. And, uh, and it was also remote and, you know, not a huge commitment. It was like a really loose, fun, like creative thing. Um, so that, yeah, I mean, that was kind of like the beginning of like me producing and like starting to do like recording sessions from my house. And then I got a taste of what, like earning money, not on the road like in a dive bar on a Monday night in Tuscaloosa feels like. You know, John, I think the the challenge for every musician and every generation is to figure out how to make money making music. And the thing for us is that the way to make money to make music has changed several times. Like, you know, like me and Greg, we were listening to CDs and all of a sudden Napster happened. It's like, oh shit. <laughs> then, you know, iTunes and all that. We were here for that. And, and like motherfuckers that's still teaching you at school to go on the road. It's like, wait a minute, motherfucking Napster. 
and fucking yeah, <laughs> like you know what I mean. Spotify, like they're not paying nobody shit. Then the record companies, they're gone. You know what I mean? So they're just like, get a record deal for what? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? It, and, and now COVID changed everything. Now you can just have a very successful career in your living room with your microphone. Well, <laughs> you know, I don't know. If very successful is what I would. You can. No. As. Well, you can. Well, yeah. Well, and that's the thing is also is like, I, I'm like super ADHD with all my projects. So like, I have a hard time following through on like the same, like you said, the sample packs thing. I made a couple sample packs. Um, you know, I dove into like the Facebook, like targeting thing. And I figured out how to make like a dollar a day in profit passively with with this sample pack. I made another one, it didn't work for that one. Um, and then some other stuff came up, like maybe Naughty Professor had their next record or like, you know, writing session or something or some project came up and then I just kind of lost steam on it. Um, but if you look at, you know, so I would definitely be way more successful if I like stuck with that and then like went really hard on that. But also I didn't love the process of doing it. It's kind of lonely making a sample pack. Like you don't even know what it's going to go over. feels like work. You know, for me, I need to find something that like I can enjoy doing ad nauseum. Um, so the sample pack thing is kind of like a, a when I feel like it thing. Um, but if you look at like AJ Hall. Exactly. Yeah. He's that's he's crushing that. And like that, that actually became a catalyst for other stuff in his career. So yeah. Um, you know, just because my sample pack thing, and also he's a drummer. I mean, sample packs for drums are probably way yeah. more. I mean, drums. Drums. drummers are the best, man. Drummers are the best, man. Look, yeah. man, we we come at John. Look, man, we we gotta wrap this up, man. We coming to the end. We Greg, John's not gonna get an OnlyFans, man. So that's that's really the seek the cheat codes to this thing, man. You gotta get an OnlyFans, all right? Get your trumpet out. <laughs> yeah. nah. Tonight, I'm gonna sign up clarinet babe 101. Hey, I, Greg, I, I Greg, I bet if you got an OnlyFans, bro. If you make hey, I get 10% of everything you make on OnlyFans out. Sure. <laughs> I'm an NFT though. No, 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 I'm your manager. Oh, you see, we didn't even get to the NFTs, man. We got to have you back on, John. Look, man. Yeah. Before before we go, John, we, we definitely want to give an opportunity to uh, tell everybody where they can uh, sign up for your OnlyFans and buy all of your uh, trumpet mutes and everything else you got for sale. Yeah, um, well, you can check out my music and, uh, you know, my uh, sample packs at johncolbreathmusic.com. Uh, you can check out Naughty Professor's stuff at naughtyprofessormusic.com. Uh, Musos, if you're an artist interesting interested in having your music uh, pitched for sync licensing, uh, reach out to us at Musos. Uh, so that's Musos.us. M-U-S-O-S dot U-S. Uh, yeah. That's, that's it. it. Yeah, John. Well, man, thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Working Artist Project. And um, we'll catch you all next week. Yeah. That's right. My name is Darian Douglas. And my name is Gregory Ajid. Later, y'all.